Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. As I mentioned last time, we're kind of coming to this halfway point in, uh, in the book. Um, we talked all the way back from the very beginning this, about this issue of the vanity of life that Solomon is talking about, van- vanity under the sun, the futility of life, the, uh, the striving uh, that, that people are uh, experiencing in their lives. As Solomon says, it's a striving after wind. They're striving for something. They're trying to gain something. They're trying to grasp something that they cannot seem to get their hands around. Uh, because they are um, trying to live life apart from God and apart from His His revealed truth. Uh, but it's not just a negative message. It's not primarily a negative message. This these twelve chapters. It's actually a, a message. that's full of hope. Um, uh, as I said, it's it's a it's it's somewhat of an, an autobiography of of Solomon as he stands at the end of his life, looking back over his life and realizing that he had spent. Much of his days, many of his years, uh, pursuing pleasure and pursuing his own personal desires, really squandering the blessings of God in his life, and not really striving for uh, the, the glory of God, and then getting to the end, realizing those things, I think repenting of those idolatrous pursuits and returning to the Lord, and then simply... Uh, wanting to pass those life lessons along. I think that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. It's just saying, listen, take it from a guy that has had all the power, that's had all the position, that's had all the prestige, that's had all the money, all the material things, all the relationships, all of these blessings in life, and misuse those things. And he's simply looking back, I think, uh, uh, particularly to his own family, to his own heritage, his own sons, but then much further than that, I think that Ecclesiastes was intended to really be something that would be broadcast and be circulated and, and would reach faraway lands, way outside of the, the borders of Israel uh, with this message that God is the creator and he's the controller of, of all things and he is the one who gives us uh, the things that we have in life to enjoy, but we need to fear him. Uh, we need to take into account uh, the fact that, that God has made us and that we will, we will uh, be accountable to him in, in the end. And so it's about work. It's about those things that we do. It's, I mean, this, we've said this before, but it's, it's, the reality is the things that you did this past week were very similar to the things that you did the week before, right? So, Lionel, I'm sure you were studying some Hebrew. Did you study some Hebrew this week? All right, I got a question. Did you study Hebrew the week before that? What about the week before that? <laughs> so I mean, you know, I mean, it's it, these things keep coming. Matt, did you go to Voss this week? Did you do that the week before that? Yes, you did. You've been doing that for a long time. So, you know, we we're doing the same things. There's these cycles and seasons and activities and events of life. This book is extremely practical because that's that that's what it focuses in on. It focuses in on those what we might say are the mundane details of life. And so it's about ironing clothes. It's about going to the grocery store. It's about talking to your neighbor. It's about your job. It's about the evil and the injustice that we see in the world around us. It's about the evil that we see within us. He's, he's getting there. He hasn't made a lot of references to this, but he'll, Solomon at some point will address that, that problem, right? It's not just the things that we see going on in the world. It's the things that we see going on within us, right, that create a lot of these these problems. So it's not that it's not that we, we see all of those 
details or we see all of those um, mundane things and we just throw our hands up and say, well, it, I guess it just doesn't matter because it just seems like it's just going round and round and round. Solomon actually has the opposite message. His message is that everything matters, uh, that the details matter, uh, the, the, the daily pursuits, the way that we relate to other people, the way that we approach God and view uh, our jobs and view our, our activities in life and the events of life, that we see the significance of every one of those things, and we see those things as coming to us from the hand of God because there's a time for this and there's a time for that, right? This is what it says in Ecclesiastes 3, that God is the one that's ordaining all these things, and if God is that involved in your life, then every detail counts, right? Because he's behind every detail, so every day, we can say every day is a God thing, right? When we use that phrase sometimes in, in Christian, we say, oh, that was a God thing. We're typically referring to some positive event that happened to us that week that we consider to be maybe a miraculous thing. What Solomon says is that every day is a God thing. <laughs> so the fact that you got up this morning and were able to get out of bed, that's a God thing. You know, and put clothes on, that's a God thing. Thank you for doing that, for putting clothes on before coming, right? Uh, all these things, God is involved in every detail, and yet we have this misunderstanding, I think, in t- at times in, in evangelicalism and in the church today that God's only intervening when it's this miraculous positive blessing in our life and not seeing that everything that goes on in your day-to-day experience, God's hand is in it. And so God is, God is on the throne, and as Ecclesiastes 3 once says, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. So as we read this book, Solomon's intention, I think, is for us to, to reflect. It's, it's for us to stop. It's for us to, to observe the things that are going on around us, to think deeply about life, uh, to reflect on the realities of life, the way things uh, truly are uh, in the life that we live and experience uh, this life that's, you know, no longer uh, a Genesis 1 or a Genesis 2 reality, but it's a Genesis 3 reality. It's a a fallen world. Uh, Christ is coming, okay? Christ is coming, uh, but he hasn't come yet. And so we're living in this sort of gospel gap. It's it's that, uh, so, and Paul in Romans 8 sort of describes this groaning, the groaning of creation, Right? And so for those of us who know Christ, it's, okay, we, we know Christ, we've been forgiven, we have the hope of eternal life, but we're still dealing with the stuff, right? We're still dealing with the day-to-day struggles. And so we have to keep all of these realities in the forefront of our minds. We have to know that we have been justified. We have to know what to expect out of life as it is right now under the sun, but then never lose sight of the fact that that things are going to be different, right? And we will be in the presence of God for, for all eternity. So we, in Ecclesiastes encourages us to sort of face these things head on, to not sugar, sugarcoat them, but to, to, to see them as, as realities and to take into consideration, again, that, that, that meaning and purpose and morality and destiny, all those things, you know, we, we need to have a Christian perspective, a biblical worldview as we think about these, these things in our lives. So we've been talking about money, okay? We've been doing this the uh, last, uh, last couple of weeks. I want to ask you to just go to Ecclesiastes 6, which is where we left off, and I'm going to read again 
this chapter for us, and we'll finish this out um, today. We've been looking at, at uh, four different things. Uh, we, we got into this last week, and we'll try to wrap this up. Um, but this, uh, this issue of materialism, this issue of, of riches and wealth, which, again, I remind you, that's, we are wealthy. I mean, in, in, from a biblical description or a, from, a, from a biblical standpoint using a, a definition that comes from Scripture, we all have, I would, I would guess, more than we need. Okay, so we're all, so don't, don't read this and think, oh, well, that's for those people that are making such and such in income or, you know, that's those, those people in that, that other tax bracket. Okay, this is all of us because we all have our needs met. If we have anything beyond what we need, we're, we're, we're rich, okay? So what does he say? Well, chapter 6, verse 1, There is an evil which I've seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This, too, is futility and a striving after wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? During the few years of his feudal life, he will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? So it's about riches. It's about prosperity. And and, and the, the, I guess the overarching thing that Solomon says here is that prosperity may not necessarily be a good thing. We a lot of times associate prosperity with certain things. And Solomon is simply saying, listen, don't judge a book by its cover. Be careful about the conclusions that you make about wealth, riches, and prosperity, especially as you observe, as he's doing, and in his case, not only observe but experience. But when you observe others that are prospering, you have to be careful about the conclusions that you draw about prosperity because prosperity can be deceiving. And so with that sort of idea in in mind, Solomon... I think, seeks here to dispel four myths. Um, the first one that we looked at is this. Myth number one, that having it all guarantees that you will enjoy it all. Having it all guarantees you will enjoy it all. He says there, there's an evil in verse one, which I've seen under the sun, and it's prevalent among men. So this is a, uh, this evil, this calamity, this, this misery that is so, it's a prevalent thing, he says. It's, we, we would use the phrase, it's a common to man issue. It's all around us. We observe it. Again, we even experience these things. What exactly is it? Verse 2, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them. 
for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. And so Solomon tells us some important things. First of all, he tells us that riches, honor, and wealth come from God. So he reminds us that those, those blessings from God, especially those material blessings that we have, that those things that we possess are gifts from God. Even the ability to make the money to buy the things is a gift from God, right? So we don't, again, if you don't know God, you don't have that perspective. That, that is a distinctly Christian perspective, that God is, is the one that empowers us to do what we do. It empowers us. He is the one who empowers us to make wealth. But that's not all that Solomon says. Solomon says, listen, all the gifts that you have, those things come from God, but it's not just that. It's also the en- enjoyment of those things. So it, it's, it's, it's not just uh, that the Lord gives us all these material things to, to, to enjoy, but he actually gives us the power to make use of them and the power to consume them, if you will. And so in, in his example here, Solomon says, listen, there's a man that has riches, he has wealth and honor, but he can't for some reason partake of the things that he has and cannot enjoy them in his life. And so uh, this man very well could be Solomon. Uh, I, I suggested last week that Solomon could just simply be looking in the mirror here and saying, there's a man, and it could be the guy he's looking at in the mirror that has these things, riches, honor, and wealth, because we know for a fact Scripture tells us that God gave Solomon those blessings. But what Solomon is saying is that there were times in his own life, I think, that he had this sort of frustration or experienced the misery of not being able to enjoy the blessings of life. And so this man he portrays in verse 2 has all of, all of the things. He has all the things that the people in, people in the world are chasing after, and yet he can't enjoy it. In fact, he says that a foreigner enjoys these things. So it, it just goes to someone else to enjoy. Uh, why that happens, we don't know. It could have been that the man had no family to pass these things down to. It could have been that he, he died uh, at, a, at a young age, that he was just at the point of life where he was beginning to amass uh, material things, but uh, died, and so he had really no one around him to uh, to take possession of those things, and so they ended up simply going to to a stranger. Um, the point that Solomon's making is is mainly that enjoyment of things and the things themselves do not automatically go together. So God, is this what Walter Kaiser said? This is a quote that we mentioned last week. He says. God has deliberately isolated the gift of the goods themselves from the gift of the power to be able to enjoy those same gifts. God has deliberately done that so that you don't put your hope in riches. (laughs) Because if you could get whatever you wanted and you had the power to enjoy, if if the enjoyment inherently was built in, then you would just set your heart there and be satisfied with it. But what God does is he allows people to sometimes have things and not enjoy them. Why? So that they ask the question, why am I not enjoying this? This is the thing that I always hoped I would get, and now that I've got it, I don't enjoy it. And what does that drive them to do? It, asks, it drives them to ask bigger questions, right? It must be something more. There must be something more to life than this thing, whether it's honor or reputation or power or material possessions. Life must be bigger than that because I have this thing that I've been chasing after for years and I cannot seem to enjoy it. 
And Solomon says, at the very least, this is habel. This is, this is vanity. This is something that weighs heavily on men. And it is certainly a very common, a common thing that we see in life. It happens, it happens all the time. So around us, every day, there are people that are not enjoying the blessings of life. They have these things, but they're not enjoying them because they don't fear the Lord. They don't fear God. Uh, or, or there's turmoil in their life. And so they can't enjoy the things because there's so many other, as a consequence of not fearing God, there are relational ramifications of that. <laughs> and the relational fallout and all of the consequences that come as a result of not fearing God, those consequences sometimes keep us from enjoying the things that God has given to us. I mentioned this proverb a few weeks ago. Proverbs, Proverbs 15, verse 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. <laughs> I mean, that's just a great truth. Better, is, better to have a little bit, but to fear God, the second part of the proverb says this, than great treasure and turmoil with it. <laughs> so it's better to have a little bit in your bank account, but to fear the Lord, than to have a lot in your bank account, but to have all the turmoil that comes with that. Then he says this in verse 17, better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. So this is a, better to have a small little bowl of soup at supper and being surrounded by people that you love and that love you than to have a big T-bone shoved in your face by someone that hates your guts. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying. So there's physical limitations, there's trouble in life, there's a lack of fearing God, and in some cases, death comes before a person is able to experience and enjoy certain things. So Solomon says, listen, enjoyment does not inherently come with increased possessions. You can have an abundance of possessions and yet lack the power to enjoy them. So we need to acknowledge that God is the giver of both riches, and he's also the one that empowers us to enjoy the things that he's blessed us with. So myth number one, having it all guarantees you will enjoy it all. Myth, the second myth that he dispels here is that living a long life guarantees that you will grow in happiness. Living a long life guarantees that you will grow in happiness. And so he portrays another man, verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than he. So Solomon says, listen, a a miscarriage, a, a stillbirth or unborn fetus is better off than this man with a hundred children. Okay? Uh, now, we talked a little bit about this. Just a, it's, It seems a little blunt. It seems a little, honestly, when you read this, the, when Solomon's talking about a, a miscarriage, uh, it can come across very insensitive uh, to make this kind of, of a comparison or contrast. And yet, we pointed out the fact that Solomon had an older brother who died at age seven, which you, Matt mentioned about the, we mentioned the idea that, that um, David and Bathsheba's uh, child uh, that came from that adulterous relationship, it died at, at seven days after birth. It was not named, so we don't know the name of this child. I did go re- look at that a little bit this week, that, that, that typically the males, the Jewish males were named on the eighth day. 
that was the earliest that they were typically named. So it was when they were went in and they had the the, uh, the the rite of circumcision that they were given a name. And so because of the age, um, this child was not given a name. But just to say this, that is, this is not some thing that Solomon's throwing out there in an insensitive manner. Solomon's own old, he had an older brother. And so this is something that would have put, that hit very close home to him. And if you think about what he's saying, I think he's setting up this contrast. If you bring it into his personal life to say this, that better off, it was better off for his older brother who lived seven days than for Solomon to have spent so many, uh, so many days of his life sort of uh, deceived into thinking that the longer he lived and the larger the family and the more that he obtained in life, that the more happy that he would be. So he, he describes this man, a, a man that, that has abundant resources, has a very large family, which would have been two indications in Jewish culture, culture of prosperity, that God was sort of shining on you, that God was blessing you for you to have a large family, many descendants, uh, and an abundant uh, resources and possessions that would have been a sort of a mark they would have associated that as, as a mark of God's special favor and yet what Solomon says here that this guy who lived a long life and had a large family did not evidently have a family around him that cared about him very much and when he died he wasn't lamented and it seemed that the people that did surround him were just surrounding him because they were trying to take advantage of his position or to use his resources. Um, and they honestly just sat around waiting for something to happen, just waiting for the will to be read so that they could find out what they were going to be getting. It actually, and in this case, the, the guy doesn't, he not only doesn't enjoy what he has, uh, they don't even mourn him. <laughs> so he passes away, they don't mourn him, and do not give him a proper burial, which was a massive sign of dishonor and disrespect in Jewish culture. Culture. It reminds me of a funeral that took place down in South Georgia when we lived down in Douglas, Georgia. One of our staff guys got a call from the funeral home and was asked to go over and to conduct a, a, a funeral at the funeral home because the family didn't have anybody, that there was no sort of ch- church association, no pastor to step in, and so... Our church administrator actually went over and did this funeral, and, and I'm, if, if I remember correctly, I think there were four or five people at the funeral. <laughs> I just thought, that's sad. That's sad. To, for someone to live three, four, five, six decades of life, and then you pass away and four people <laughs> show up for your funeral, but that's, that's what he's saying here, is, is that that's, that's the, the illustration that he's, that he's using is just say, this guy, his focus was completely off. And, and the world makes this mistake. And we make the mistake of believing that if we, just, if we live longer, things are just going to be getting better and better and better and happier and happier and happier. But that may not be the case at all. So Solomon's conclusion is that it were better for this man had he never been born or that he had been Stillborn, why? Verse 4, for it, the miscarriage comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity, or in some your translations may say in darkness. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is better off 
than he, even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. So why is a stillborn baby better off than this other man who lives a long life? Well, he's, he's simply saying that a, 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 a child that dies that young, has no, he has no history to live down. He, has, he, he, he doesn't, no one knows anything about that child and, and no one can put down that child, and no one can compare that child, and no one can see the good or the bad in that child's life. And that child does not experience the futility. The child doesn't experience the frustrations and the disappointments and the enigmas of life under the sun, and yet the wealthy man does. <laughs> He does experience those things, and people do know about him, and they do see his life, and they do make judgments about his life, and he is struggling with the futility of life. And though a miscarriage might not experience any life under the sun, Solomon says, and he may pass into darkness or obscurity and remain unknown, Scripture tells us that he will experience, that child will experience the grace of God and will be at rest with God. In fact, if you have an ESV, verse 5 says this, Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. That is to say that the stillborn child never had a job, never had, got an education, um, never had any money, never had a retirement account or any of those things, and yet nonetheless that child is at rest. That child does possess the riches of rest and provision with God, something that this, this wealthy person that he's describing knows nothing about. So myth number one, having it all guarantees you will enjoy it all. Myth number two, living a long life guarantees you will grow in happiness. Just, just not the case. Um, in fact, long life in a big family without the gift of enjoyment is, he says, it, it is a a grievous thing. And so we have people, again, just just realize, these are the people that that you see every day. Every day you see people that are, they're living longer, they're accumulating more, and yet even though that is the, I would say that is generally the case of most people in, in our, the culture in which we live, there's more depression, Right? There's more anxiety. There's less enjoyment. Uh, there's no peace, right? I mean, there's, there's no peace around us. No contentment. In fact, I was getting my hair cut a week ago, and uh, the lady that we go to, that we've gone to, to her for, for a number of years, but she was just asking me about counseling and different things, and she just mentioned, she said, yeah, she said, I I, I, I want to get your uh, business card or something because there's another customer that I have. It's, it's a guy that has essentially raised his children. The guy's probably late 50s, early 60s. She said, but I've known him for, you know, 10 plus years, him and his wife. And she said, Joel, it is like night and day. This guy was just happy-go-lucky. Everything's great in the world. Uh, had his own business, very successful and then he got to this point where it was just a life transition. Kids were moving out of the house. And she said, Joel, he, he, it's like a different person. He, he, the fear has completely over, overtaken him in his life. 
He has absolutely no joy. He's ha he has all kinds of physical and health issues. And she said, it's just like, it's like, it's not even the same guy. <laughs> um, now, she went on to say, ask some other questions. You know, I mean, there's, there's other factors, you know, here. I mean, the guy is, the guy is a, um, a pretty uh, strong Roman Catholic. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's lots of, you know, he's gripped, I think, by doctrine that fuels fear, <laughs> right? So he has no peace with God, but along with those sort of theological issues, there is just this general observation that he seems to be a guy that was saying, if I could just build a business and I could just have a family and I could get to this point in my life, then it would just like the top would just blow off and it would just be awesome. And then he gets to this climactic point in his life and it's the, it, it, the, the balloon pops. There's nothing there. It's, it's, it's exactly what Solomon says. It's like it, it is that steam. It's, it's that, that breath. You can't get your hands around it. He thought it was going to be something that had more substance to it. But when he finally got to that point in his life, he realized it's, there's, he's striving after wind. It's like he's trying to grab the wind and put it into a bag or something. And he can't seem to, to do it. So, just because you live longer doesn't mean you're going to grow in happiness and joy and peace and those things. All right, myth number three. Solomon dispels this myth that meeting all of your needs guarantees your greatest need is met. That meeting all of your needs guarantees that your greatest need is met. That is to say that men have an insatiable appetite. So uh, a man can have everything that he needs, but if he's lacking the Lord, if he doesn't have the Lord as his shepherd in his life, he will not be content. There's always going to be a chasing after something else. Verse 7, all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite or you could even translate that his 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 entire life or even his soul. So all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet his soul or his life is not satisfied, which is just a term for filling something up. So he's going to work to make money, to get more things, to pay bills, and to keep this cycle going. It's like with our, you know, our kids, it's like you get a job. But then you have to figure out a way to get to the job, and so you have to get a car, but then you can't make your car payment unless you, get a, you have a job. All right? And you're just like, well, at some point you kind of scratch your head. I think everybody does this at some point. Like, this just seems, can I just stop everything? <laughs> I don't want to work. I'll give up the car. I'll do, you know, because you realize that these things just kind of feed into one another. And so you have these things, but now you have to work to pay for these things and the, the cycle just keeps going on and on and on, and these things just don't satisfy and we see this especially at this time of year that the longings never go away it, it's just i mean ever it's this climactic build up everybody's thinking about what they're maybe wanting or what they're wanting to give someone or what they're wanting to get from someone and i can just tell you that when january comes it's just not going to be what it those feelings are not going to be there right there's going to be a measure of discontent it's a new year and now we're looking at what's the next thing Right, and they're going to go to work. Some of these guys are going to go to work right after Christmas with this, so excited about sharing. And then they're going to look over and across the, the the you know the guy in the other cubicle. They're going to see what he got, and then all of a sudden that thing that he's he has is not going to be so fantastic. He's going to be like, well, well, what's that you got over there? You know, and maybe he got 
the iPhone, what is it, the 6S? Is that the latest one? That's going to be changed in, in a matter of probably four days. But <laughs> what is the latest one? Is it the 6S? You know, it's, it, but it's amazing. It's just like <laughs> as soon as everybody puts in their pre-orders, <laughs> those guys are like, okay, what's the next one? You know, we got to come out with another, keep everybody sort of dangling, right? So, you know, why does a person work? Solomon says, well, people work to make money to eat. They make enough to eat. Why do people eat? Because they want to add years to their life. But Solomon says, listen, what good is it for you to add years to your life if you are not adding life to your years? What good is that? So he's not suggesting that it's wrong to work, and he's not suggesting that it's wrong to eat. He's just saying that if life consists only of those things then we are, at the end of the day, being ruled by our appetites. Dominated by our appetites, we feed those appetites, and yet we get hungry all over again. And yet we still scratch our heads thinking, well, what would really make my life richer? Maybe it's more gadgets, maybe it's more children, maybe it's a better job or more education, but it's, it's God that makes life richer. Verse 8, I'll bring it, verse 8. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? He says, a wise man might gain a temporary advantage over a fool or a poor man might even have a temporary advantage in knowing how to live without wealth or power. But neither one can gain an advantage over death. And neither one can gain an advantage over God. Verse 9, what the eye sees is better than what the soul desires. This is the equivalent of of our phrase, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. That is to say that dreaming about something doesn't bring it to pass or bring it into our possession. And so he's saying, take what you have, what you can see, and don't count on your desires being fulfilled. Because it's better to be content with what you have than to waste your life desiring what you don't have. Again, it's coming down to this issue of if God has given you gifts in your life, learn to enjoy the gifts God has given and stop looking out there for something better and then squander the things that you already have. So it's, it's not saying don't ever you know have aspirations or don't ever dream. It, it's just saying that we're guilty sometimes of not taking advantage of the very thing that's right in front of us because we're, that insatiable appetite drives us to what's the next thing? So it's better to be content with what you have than to waste your life desiring what you don't. Over in Philippians 4, you remember this passage, Paul talks about this writing from prison, chapter 4, verse 10 of Philippians. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled. I mean, these terms, being filled and satisfied, and it sounds like Ecclesiastes. And hungry, right? I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. 
He says, listen, I, in whatever circumstance, I've learned to be content. Some of you may actually have in your translation, in fact, I have New American Standard. In back in verse 11, if you have a note there and you have, col- you have sort of a notes in the center column or in, in, your, in your Bible, you might notice that in the column, mine does this for that particular verse. It actually says in, in the column, self-sufficient. That is exactly what the word is. So think about this. Paul's saying this. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be self-sufficient in whatever circumstances I am. Now, that doesn't, something doesn't sound right about that, right? Because when we think about self-sufficiency, it, we could say, well, what is Paul saying here? <laughs> He's saying that I've learned to be dependent on myself or self-sufficient, or to, to trust in myself and my own. Well, that is totally contrary to everything that Paul ever wrote, right? So what is he getting at? He's simply saying this, because the contrast in that verse is about him, the way he's handling circumstances. And I think all he's simply saying is this, that I've learned to be content, meaning that I've learned to trust God in the situation that I'm at, that with what I have, the resources that I have to deal with my circumstances, it's something inside, it's something internal. It's not something that's dictated by the circumstances. So it's not a self-sufficient, self-sufficiency that says, there's no God. It's just Paul simply saying that there is an inner strength that I have to deal with whatever circumstances come. Now, what is, what is the inner strength? Well, he tells us that, right? Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So it's not a self-sufficiency that ignores Christ. It's just saying that I've learned to be content and not be driven by my circumstances. My contentment and my joy and my peace do not come and go with the changing of the situation or the circumstances because I have an inner strength to press on, and that strength comes from Christ. Yes? It's not. No. Yeah. So... Yeah, or the one that we, the, the, the back years ago, it was the, um, had the big bodybuilder, you know, like this with the big barbell. And, I can do, and then in the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, yeah, as if that were supposed to make us more yeah, equipped for the Friday night football game. But yet we're so guilty, right? We're so guilty of that mindset that says, if only I had this, if only this changed, then these things would be different. If only I had a different job, if only I could live in a different place or make that salary or if I could own one of those. But the inescapable fact is this, that none of these conditions gives us what we're longing for and yet we dispute with God. We dispute with God. Yes? Yes, it does. Yeah, 
No, we, we do, we, we will, it's amazing the effort we will put into changing our external circumstances. Really honestly believing that if those things change, that something inside's going to be different. So, again, Solomon's not telling us that it's wrong to, to dream great dreams or to have a burning ambition to accomplish something in life. He's just simply telling us that we need to be careful that our ambition is not motivated by the praise of men and self-glory. Some have suggested that what Solomon's saying here is, is simply an exhortation to come to terms with reality. So we sit, we sit back and say, well, but what if I added a family? But what if I added a few children? What if, what if I worked harder and longer? What if I added more years to my life? What if I added a little education or more training? Maybe that would bring satisfaction. And it's as if Solomon is shouting to himself, Stop dreaming. It doesn't work. <laughs> Stop telling yourself that if you could just add something, some additional gift, some additional material thing, some additional blessing to your life, that you would somehow at that point gain the satisfaction that you're looking for. He says, basically, true satisfaction comes when we are doing the will of God from the heart. That's when it comes. In the will of God. There can be riches and enjoyment and labor with satisfaction. But we must accept his plan for us and receive his gifts with gratitude and enjoy each day as he enables us to. Then notice first, the end of verse 9, he says, This too is futility and a striving after wind. So again, this, that is a, a summary that we've seen over and over again in the book. In chapter 1, verses 14 and 17, in chapter 2, verses 11, 17, 26, chapter 4 and verses 4, 6, and 16, chapter 5, verse 16. But it's a phrase that Solomon will not use again for the remainder of the book. So he's been hammering us with this statement, this too is futility and striving after the wind, but that is, this is the last time we'll hear that statement, which is why a lot of people describe chapter 6 as the low point of the book. <laughs> uh, interestingly, verse, the very next verse, verse 10 in the, in the Hebrew text is the middle of the book. So verse 10 marks the middle of the Hebrew text. And the first, or we might even say this, this uh, it, it brings this first half of the book to a close with this phrase in verse 9. This too is futility and is striving after the wind. And then from the other side, we can say that the next two or three verses that are coming are going to set up the rest of the book. So it's as if he gets to this point and his summary statement about chapters 1 to 6 is this is futility and striving. <laughs> and then what he says next in 10, 11, and 12, he's introducing where he's going for the second half in the next six chapters. Now, what do those verses emphasize? The sovereignty of God. A sovereign God. That, that's, where, that's where he's going. A God who demonstrates his authority by creating. A God who demonstrates his authority by naming. He talks about this issue of, of, of naming. It's, it's actually an allusion in verse, verse 10 back to Genesis 1 of God naming the day and the night and the expanse and the waters and the land and the seas. So the third myth that Solomon dispels is meeting all of your needs guarantees your greatest need is met. And Solomon reminds us that having what we need doesn't satisfy even if our needs are met, that we will always want more unless we are fearing God and trusting God. And then finally, this fourth myth in verses 10 to 12, 
the myth that lasting satisfaction can be found without submitting to a sovereign God. That's a myth. (laughs) It's a myth, a misunderstanding that lasting satisfaction can be found and experienced without submitting to a sovereign God. Verse 10, whatever exists has already been named and it is known what man is for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. Most people agree this is a reference to God. Uh, Charles Swindoll summarizes verse 10 in this way. So long as I fight the hand of God, I do not learn the lessons he is attempting to place before me. So as long as you're in a posture of resisting a sovereign God, you don't learn, you don't learn the lessons. You chase after the things of this life. You end up with meaninglessness and futility. But guess what? You don't get it. <laughs> you don't understand the lessons of the things that God is putting you through in life. Why don't you learn that? Because your attitude and your posture is that you're going to resist this God. You're going to argue with this God. You're going to dispute with God about these things in your life. Verse 11, for there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? That is to say that there are some things about life that nobody can answer. And there are times when it seems like the more that we discuss a topic, the less we really understand it. The NIV translates it this way, the more the words, the less the meaning. The more the words, the less the meaning. Not that we don't honestly inquire about the meaning of life, but at some point we're going to have to face our limitations. We're going to have to face and come to grips with our ignorance and how little we really know, which should never be used as an excuse for us to, to to be filled with unbelief, but should drive us to faith in God. Verse 12, for, he, for who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life, he will spend them like a shadow, for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Solomon poses basically two questions here. Who knows what is good for man? Who knows what is good for man? And does anybody know what's coming next? And the answer to both those questions, God, God knows what's good for us. And God knows what's coming next because he controls all things and he alone satisfies our hearts. So wealth or family cannot bring final satisfaction in our hearts. We can have a full treasury. We can have a full quiver. We can have a full lifespan. You can have all of that, but still depart this life unnoticed, unlamented, and unfulfilled. Only submitting to a sovereign God will guarantee the satisfaction that you seek. And he made it that way. <laughs> so he's just saying, this is the way that God ordained it. This is the way that, 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 that he, has, he has designed it. This is what he's decreed before man was ever created. <laughs> he made us. He knows what we're like. He knows how we function, what will satisfy us and what will not. And it, this is the way it has been designed and decreed in spite of what man may try to do, and arguing does not help. <laughs> in fact, C.S. Lewis said it this way, to argue with God is to argue with the very power that makes it possible to argue at all. That's what he's saying. You can complain about God, you can complain about your lot in life, but arguing with God is the supreme vanity. <laughs> it's the supreme vanity. So if you want to find lasting satisfaction and true joy, Solomon says, humble yourself. Humble yourself 
before God as your creator, as your redeemer. Trust in him. Rejoice in what comes from his hands, in his timing, and in his plan. And learn to focus not on the riches and not on the honor and not on the material things. Learn to focus on the things that money cannot buy and that death cannot take away. What are those things? Your salvation, your integrity, your honor and character, peace of mind, regardless of the circumstances, a clear conscience, right? Those are the things that nobody can take away from you. Those are the things we need to be focused on. Serving others, loving your neighbor. Your years may be few, but they do not have to be futile. So that brings us to the end of the first half. And uh, what we are going to do next week is we're going to take a a break from Ecclesiastes and we're going to go to John 14. I'm looking forward to this. John 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And in verse 27, peace I leave with you. And he talks about the peace of Christ, what it is and how to experience it. We're going to jump there for one Sunday and talk about John 14. The week following that is the, is the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. We do not have Bible study that week. So that particular Sunday we'll have worship that Sunday morning. I think John David Thompson is going to be preaching that morning. Um, and then the first Sunday of the New Year we'll be back at Ecclesiastes 7. Okay, so John 14 next week, then we'll have a week off, and then we'll be back to our study in Ecclesiastes, the first of the year. Okay, folks, thank you for your time.